Um, one of the things that uh, those of you who travel, how many of you are, are traveling somewhere this summer? Travel plans, getting, getting away at some point, maybe you've already been, you're back. Uh, one of the things you'll notice is this, I don't care if you leave your city and go to the next county, or if you go across the border to a different country, um, there are things, there are little subtleties along the way that, that tell you I'm not at home. Uh, it could just be a different bathroom or a different pillow or a different smell or different food or different people. Um, but when you go to Ethiopia, let me just tell you, for those of you who haven't been, um, there are not so subtle reminders all along the way letting me know I am not at home. Uh, let me just show you a few. I threatened our Facebook uh, friends in our Neighborhood Bible Church Facebook group this, uh, this last week with a nine-hour African missionary slideshow. I've trimmed it. Uh, so we're down to, we're down to three. We've got three hours of slides. You're going to love every one of them. Um, I'm kidding. Um, all right. So here's the first one. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here with my wife at this place. It's a little dark, but that's a monkey eating an ice cream cone. Uh, when I look at that, I see, a, I see a monkey chomping on an ice cream cone and I'm like, I am not in San Jose. That is not what I'm used to seeing. We were we saw many strange animals. Uh, the animals, much like other parts of the world, they just hang out in, in the middle of the street. They cross when they want. Uh, we saw things that, you know, we thought, where's the owner of these animals? They're just, they're just cruising around. We saw a really rare species. One of the things that was really fascinating is we saw the incredibly rare um, hay humpback donkey. Uh, and these are, these are only found, I think, in, in kind of northeastern Africa. So we got to bump into those. I saw a man fixing his roof, which isn't all that remarkable, except for the fact that his tools were, um, hay and bamboo, like these, uh, these bamboo poles. And he was, he was working on his roof. And what's interesting about this is it rained every day, uh, most every day, and it really downpoured. So he was working, working hard on this thing. Um, I had lunch with my wife, which isn't all that remarkable because I eat lunch with her quite often. Uh, what's different about Africa is this, that if you look over her shoulder, uh, the, the, uh, the thing saying grace is this monkey. You can't tell, but his hands are like this. He's praying. So he blessed the food for us right here in Africa. And once again, it was just one of those things I knew I was in a different kind of a place. Um, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The first of the seven words I want to talk about is the word home. Uh, one of the things that, we, that was constantly on our minds and we were thinking about the entire time we were there is home. Uh, one more story just to, to um, let you know a little bit of our life there. Uh, there is a place there called Caldi's, and it's clear that someone from Ethiopia came here, saw a gajillion Starbucks, figured they were making a lot of money, and ripped it off as much as he legally could, which is a lot in Ethiopia. Uh, he's got the same green and white kind of a logo, the same kind of artsy things written on the wall that you're like, what does that mean? You don't really know, but it's there. It makes you feel kind of warm. Um, and they served amazing coffee. And so one of the things that I did was I would walk sometimes down there. Beck and I would, would cruise down there for a cup of coffee or something. And one time we were walking, and, uh, and the, the, the clouds started to kind of come over. It was the afternoon time. We hadn't had our big, giant, we're talking Midwest storm, downpour in 30 seconds. It's just, you know, a river of mud down the middle of the street. And uh, we had these ponchos, which, which you come to find out, really the poncho after 30 seconds just means that now you have a wet, sticky piece of plastic around your body. It just didn't do a whole lot. 
But I told Becky, like, hey, I'm going to leave. I'm going to try to make it to Caldi's. Maybe a 10-minute walk. So I'm kind of half jogging, half walking there. And what you notice is the streets just start to clear out. There's always a ton of people around. And as they start to clear out, you realize it's getting closer and closer. So it's starting just a very light sprinkle. And sometimes you have 40 seconds after that light sprinkle. So I'm kind of half walking, half jogging. And this guy passes me. And there's very little English in, the, in, in Ethiopia, where, where, where we were anyways. And this guy walks past me, and I hear this. Hurry, Ferengi. <laughs> now, Ferengi, or Ferengi, that's foreigner. So this guy, I wasn't walking fast enough for this foreigner, for this guy, this native. He's like, dude, you're about to get really, really wet. And, uh, and I kind of like looked over my shoulder, and I start making the run for the door of this place. I'm like 100 yards out, and at about 75 yards, 60 yards, whoo, like it just downpours, much to the amusement of everyone seeing me. <laughs> So I make it in, and I'm inside the building, and I just, I'm just drenched. And uh, being called foreigner is a really normal thing there. Ferengi! They'll just look at you. Ferengi! You know, and they'll just say it you know, out loud to you, and you're like, that's me. You know, <laughs> don't belong. Um, turning your Bibles to John 14. And I want to just, uh, these are some passages that came on my heart just as we were on our trip. Sometimes these, uh, these little notes were written down at 2 in the morning when I couldn't sleep or something, or, or just on a, a ride somewhere. But... Um, I wanted to share with you a, a, a passage of scripture where, uh, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And it talks about home a little bit. John chapter 14, verse 1. Those of you who have been away already this summer, uh, especially if you leave your family, you leave your loved ones, you know there's kind of this, this inner ache for home, Right? Some of you don't travel well. I know you. You just you don't like strange things. You don't like different foods. You don't like different people. And being away from home is a real challenge for you. Um, but all of us, I think, no matter, even if we're adventurous, we love to go travel. Uh, there's an inner ache for home that you just, you're enjoying yourself. You love seeing it. You've been, you've been anticipating this trip. And yet there's a little part of you constantly that is thinking about home, that is aching for home. Think on that as we hear the words of Jesus in John 14 to his disciples and now vicariously through us to, to, to his disciples nowadays as well. Let not your hearts be troubled, verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. This world is not our home. That's one of the first things I hope that you learned as a Christian. There's, there's an inner ache as a Christian, and it's God's Spirit in us that says, This isn't your home. This isn't all that you're living for. I, all through Scripture, men and women of faith are commended. Those who walk not by what they see, but by that which is unseen. Right? Those who are longing for their home. There's the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews. And it says that all of these didn't receive what was promised, but they were looking forward to in hope something better, a better reward. While in Ethiopia, this idea that that wasn't our home was crystal clear to me. That was, I mean, at every mealtime, every place I went, every place that my foot stepped made me realize this is not my home. It wasn't hard to figure out. I didn't have to try to remember that. Being there in a different country uh, informed my decisions about what we would do about different things. I kind of owned certain things while in Ethiopia. 
But it, it, it gave me a perspective of, of how I owned that. I owned it loosely. I stayed in a place, but it was just a guest house. It was a place I was going to be at for a little while and then check out. So I didn't, I didn't grow too attached to that. I took in the sites. We went different places. We enjoyed things. Uh, but but I, didn't, I didn't sit there and, and, and think that I was going to be there for a long period of time because I knew that I wasn't. And as I'm there away from, from my home here in the U.S., it just made me think spiritually about, about us. And what a strange thing it would be, wouldn't it, if, if Becky and I just set up shop and lived as if that was our home, completely oblivious to the fact that we, we have a different home that we're returning to very shortly. Uh, each one of us is not at home in this world if we are in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what I think. I think that it requires much prayer on our part and much grace by the Lord Jesus Christ to constantly remind us of that in a culture and in a country that has so much stuff. I sat at breakfast yesterday. Um, the, the cooks graciously bought us some groceries, so we came home to some fresh products in our home. Thank you, cooks. Um, by the way, I'll say publicly right now, thank you so much. This church family, our faith family, just did amazing things for us while we were gone, as did our biological family. Um, and those of you even who didn't help, so many of you offered and said, Dave, if you need anything, uh, let, me, let me say this. I think I get it a little bit more because I'm the pastor, I'm visible, I'm up front. Um, but it was a picture of how the community of faith ought to function. We had great need as we went away to know that our five children here were cared for, were loved on, were provided for, were, were arriving at the train station in the right places at the right time. And that happened because we have an incredible support system here. My challenge to you, my reminder to you, let's do that for every member of the body, every member of this family, from the most visible person to the least visible person, the, the, the least known person. You say, well, how am I supposed to get to know the least known person? When we have a lousy sound check and things aren't happening and there's a greeting time, you go find them. That's how you do it. You go and intentionally meet them and you find out who they are and that's how you begin to find out what needs you can be meeting. Uh, I, I got maybe... 20 minutes into Ben's uh, message a couple of weeks ago, I praise God that um, I didn't worry about you guys and things happening here. We have a great team, and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest, Ben. What I did here was this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I thought, man, that is, that's a potent, powerful uh, passage of Scripture, isn't it? And, and I, it reminded me, it dawned on me this, this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, what we see the here and now, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. All the people I saw in Ethiopia that didn't know Jesus, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, conquer death, pave our way to be guilt-free of sin, then we're most to be pitied of anyone in the whole world. If we're longing for a home that doesn't exist... So if you're doing this on the coattails of your parents, on the coattails of some friends, if you kind of did it culturally a little bit, to kind of get in on a Christian thing, the Bible says you're most to be pitied. If you're not utterly convinced of this truth, this reality. He goes on to say, but he did rise from the dead. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is about that, the resurrection of the dead. If the resurrection of the dead isn't true, didn't happen, then even Christ didn't rise from the dead, and we're most to be pitied. 
But the truth that we're standing here this morning, sitting here this morning on, is that it did happen. And it will happen again. And Jesus is the first to rise among many who are going to rise. Our driver is a guy by the name of Hailey. Say that with me. Hailey. Hailey. Isn't that fun? It's just fun. Hailey. You just, you could say, you could emphasize it differently. Hi, Lee. Highly, and you, highly, you can, you just, it's a blast to just keep enjoying saying it over and over. But highly was this guy, we get into his cab, he was recommended to us by, uh, some missionary friends that we had. They said, look, we'll, we'll set you up with a driver that we know we're going to give you a fair price. So we met him on day two, I think. And, uh, and Hailey was there and in Hailey's van. I knew that he drove for the missionary school, but I didn't know uh, his status with the Lord. But I knew I'd find out spending some time in a captive audience of being in a car together. And I look and on his window shield are some different stickers. Jesus is Lord. Jesus changed my life. Jesus is King of Kings. Praise Jesus. I had about six of them there. Uh, it was a little bit crystal clear, you know, where he stood. Hanging from his rearview mirror was, this car is covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm like, well, that's good to know. That's worth, it's worth an extra car right there, you know, just knowing that that's the case. So, uh, you know, a minute into meeting the guy, I said, I said, Hailey, you have a sticker here that says, Jesus changed your life. Tell me about it. For the next almost two weeks, we just got to share a word from the Lord every single day, back and forth. One of the things Hailey told me was this. He's never left Ethiopia before. He lived in a rural part, now drives a taxi for a living in the busiest city in the country. And one of the things he told me was this. He said, you know, when you become a Christian in Ethiopia, especially about 10, 15, 20 years ago, you definitely didn't do it without a sense of dying to yourself. You definitely didn't do it uh, for a popularity thing or without a, a deep sense of commitment. You see, when you made that decision to become a Christian, many, many disowned their children, disowned their brother, disowned their mother or father, and said, said that you're no longer one of us. Ben mentioned a passage last week. I didn't come to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. And it will divide families. The gospel will divide families. And it was such a blessing to receive from Hailey. I'm going to talk more about Hailey. But one of the things about Hailey that you've got to love is this. He's got this cell phone, and every time his cell phone rang for two weeks... We heard, it wasn't Johnny Cash. I went home and Googled to see who was singing this. It sounded like Johnny Cash to me. But his singular ringtone was this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I heard that probably 120 times in the first few days. He's a taxi driver. He's getting calls all the time. So at lunch, we're hearing that. In the middle of a conversation, we're hearing that. As he's dropping us off, we're hearing that. And over and over and over, this song is drumming into my head. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. What a great lyric. We referenced that several times as we drove around the city. The second word I want to share with you is the word step. This is a picture of Becky uh, on a place that we, we, uh, we drove up to called Mount Entoto. And uh, it's just outside the city. It kind of shoulders the city. <clears throat> and uh, I bring up the word step because of this. Uh, I think when you're in a place of uh, being different, just in a different location, not the mundane, not the routine, you have a deeper sense. I have a deeper sense anyways, that each and every step, I'm dependent on my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for what's about to happen, what's going to happen. 
I said that a living illustration behind me, behind me with all this electronical difficulties is a, is a picture of this. This is what I'm talking about. See, as I'm sitting up here, having my guitar cut in and out, having the mics go, I'm just going, Lord, you're sovereign. You knew that we did everything we could to not have this happen. Now it's happening. I'm not sure why it's happening. Now I know it's because it preaches well. But I'm sitting there and I just have a deep sense of this is okay. I think that three weeks ago I would have just been really flustered and bummed and going, come on. And thinking somehow this depended on me. Every step of the way in Ethiopia was covered in prayer. By many of you praying, those of you who committed to prayer, uh, thank you. We needed it. We had several people just tell us upon landing, we prayed for you every single day. You've been well prayed for. My response was, thank you, and I know. I mean, I really do. I have a deep sense that God took us on a missions trip, even though we didn't have a whole lot of context of what was going to happen. You're going to hear more as we go. What's interesting is this. Not all the prayers that were answered were big, giant things. Many of them were very tiny things that were along the way. But I had a deep sense with each step of the way, each moment of the day, that God was in control, and I was deeply in need of checking in with Him of what was going to happen, what needed to happen. Psalm 37, 23, 24 says this. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. God really brought to my mind on this trip a fresh realization, and what a joy it was to realize this. My Christian walk began as a gift. It began by the grace of God. It was all grace that drew me to the Savior. Every step of the way along my journey thus far and up to this day has been grace. At times I've acknowledged it deeply, seen it crystal clear, and at other times I've just skated along not really paying attention to it. But it's been all grace up to this point. And here's what I know and I'm convinced of. To see me through to the end, I'm wholly and completely dependent on the grace of God. It's not up to me. I have a part to respond to that. I have a part to walk in that. I have a part to grow in my knowledge and to pursue Jesus with all that I am. But it's all grace that started this thing, continues this thing, and is going to end this thing. What a deep comfort that was to me on my trip. The city of Addis Ababa, where we were staying for two weeks, resides at seven feet. That's higher than Lake Tahoe. That's partway up Squaw Valley Ski Resort. Mount Entoto, where we're hiking right here, is at 10,500 feet. It's a short drive from where we are. And we drove up this, uh, this really steep hill, got to the top of it, immediately fell in love with it because we're now above the smog line, which is a great thing. I get a little annoyed at California smog laws once in a while. It's, you know, it gets a little bit much sometimes. But when you go to Ethiopia, you praise God that we have smog control on our vehicles. Um, it was, it was a challenge to our lungs, uh, but God's grace saw us through. Here we are at Mount Toto cruising around, and uh, we, we basically had the, uh, this is Hiley, by the way, our, our driver, and that's the 1986 Toyota cruised around in the whole time. Here we are um, cruising up, up to the top of Mount Toto. As we're hiking along, we basically went on this hyena hunt. He had said that he had saw a hyena there a little while ago. We went to this den. He's chucking rocks den trying to get the hyena to come out you know i've got camera ready you know i told becky here hold this piece of meat you know i'm just kidding um 
but but here we are, you know, here we are hiking around up there, and um, like any hike, any journey, this wasn't a very remarkable hike, so don't think it was too heroic, but on any hike, what you have is you have a series of steps, right? Uh, some are more uh, notable than others. The very first step on a journey is kind of notable, and you think about, well, here we go, we're off on our journey. 20 minutes in, you're taking steps, it's very, you know, unremarkable, you're just walking along. You kind of stumble a little bit, and that's, you know, mildly unremarkable, unless you're near a cliff or something. And then you walk some more, and walk some more, and walk some more. There's another notable one when you finish, and you're all done, and you say, whew, we're all done. By the way, when we were all done, we couldn't even speak. We were just like a goldfish out of the bowl. You know, we were gasping for oxygen. This 17-year-old kid who lives up there uh, decided to be our guide for us, and he just kind of hiked around and walked with us, and he was completely not out of breath. He walks every day down the mountain to school and back up. And now as he's hiking with us, Hailey's out of breath, Becky's out of breath, I'm out of breath, and he's just sitting there going, come on, what's happening? (laughs) It was tough. But in this journey, in this Christian journey, it's the same way. There are certain notable kinds of days, and we pray on those notable days. When someone receives the Lord, it's a notable step, isn't it? That's like the first step on a journey. When they get baptized, when some... A supernatural thing happens in their life when God heals them from something, when God delivers them from some temptation or remarkable thing. What do we stop to do? We stop to thank God in those moments, don't we? We're about to face a trial. What do we do? We stop and pray. How fervently do we pray? That depends on how big the trial is. That depends on how much we think it's out of our hands. I mean, really, if we think we can kind of handle it, how much do we pray? We might throw up a little, you know, a little nod to God. But in essence, we're telling him, we've got this one. I'm not a nervous flyer at all. But when I get on an airplane, I just pray over that airplane. And I don't know, genuinely, I don't want to, you know, freak anyone out who's going on a trip soon. But, I mean, you're ripping along at a pretty good clip there. And, you know, I, I just say, Lord, if, if it's your will, uh, we'd love to be reunited as a family. We'd love to land on the other side of what we're about to, to go take off on. But if it's not your will, I'm ready to meet you. In fact, I'm joyful to meet you. And let me be a witness to people on this aircraft, realizing this might be the last time they ever have a, an opportunity to choose Jesus. Now, that's a little bit more heavy than maybe some people. Some people are flipping through the Sky Mall, you know. I want some duty-free products, you know. That's where my head's at. We're ripping along the runway, and I just pray over that. You know why? I am completely out of control when I'm in an airplane. I don't know how to fly planes. I don't have any control of what's happening up there. On this trip, what I realized was this. I found myself praying every step of the way, trusting God in a deeper way, for very unremarkable things even. And I just questioned my own heart, my own life. I said, why don't you do this at home? It's because I'm so full of myself. I think I've got it handled here. I know the drive from my house to work, and so I don't really think about safety or think about what God might have for me on that path. Many of us, if you're like me, are thinking two or three steps ahead about what we're going to do when we get there, what needs to happen, our checklist, what's going to happen this weekend, what plans are going on over there. Each step of the journey, grace is required. Each step of the way, we're to pray without ceasing. Jonah's uh, an interesting guy. He has an interesting tale, doesn't he? story of Jonah is that God calls him. He's going to say, I'm going to use you to minister to this people group. What does he do? Yeah, he says, he looks on a map. What's the furthest point from there? It's over here. I'm going this way. 
In chapter 2 of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, uh, And then um, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. That's a pretty remarkable place to pray, isn't it? Some of you are praying right now from the belly of some kind of a fish in your life. You're desperate. Okay, God, I give up. I am all ears right now. I cry out to you. It's heartfelt. It's sincere. Here's what I know, though. That wasn't the only time Jonah prayed. That's a remarkable story. And people preach on it and write on it and tell stories about it in Sunday school a lot. But do you know how I know it's not the only time he prayed? Because it says that he was a Hebrew who feared the Lord his God. That means that he was in conversation, in relationship with God long before the belly of the fish. It's just that that one step seemed really remarkable, and so we gravitate towards that. We know later on he's in this dialogue with God about what? What's the end of his life about? The the end of the, the, the book about? A plant, right? Remember the plant? And he's justified in his anger, he thinks, about this. And basically, here's the storyline. He's mad at God for his compassion on these people. I didn't want to go witness to these people because I know you. You're a compassionate God. I knew you'd be compassionate on my enemies. And that bummed me out. That's essentially the book of Jonah. You can go read it for yourself. The point of that is this. Don't wait to be in the belly of a fish to cry out to God. You're as needy in the next 10 minutes for your life and your breath and your health as you ever have been in your entire life. Isn't that remarkable? But we don't see it because we're just in the routine. We know the drill. We can predict what's going to happen. So we're not in that mode of praying step by step. Listen to a few verses that should be fresh on our minds. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. My friend Hiley here told me a story. I said, Hiley, what's God been providing for you of late? He said, well, um, let me tell you a story. He said, okay. He started in with a story about a prayer that he had for him and his family. He has some kids and he has a young uh, boy right now at home. And he began to pray to the Lord that he could have a home in this capital city of this country that would have a shower. He's already very thankful for his bathroom, which is outdoors, not attached to the home. Very grateful for that. But he said, Lord, if I could just have a shower, that would be fantastic. It's a challenge to keep myself clean, not having a shower in my house. So he said, you know what I did? I began to pray. I said, well, that sounds reasonable. He said, yeah, and God was so good to me. So good. So what did he do? He said, he provided a house for me with a shower. I said, Hiley, what was the time period between there? He said, well, it was seven years. So for seven years, his prayer to God was, God, would you provide me with a shower in my house? He said, it was so hot. Look on, look on the map. Ethiopia is very close to the equator. Now, because it's at high elevation, it's not super hot all the time. But he said, yeah, the engine was right here in my car, and all I would do is drive around all day long in the city. And I would just get so sweaty and... God was so good. You know what I didn't hear come out of Hiley's mouth? 
I didn't hear any complaint that it took seven years. Isn't that where your mind just went? Seven years? I mean, aren't there homes out there with a shower, God, that that you could have sped the process up a little bit? Seven years. I challenge you to go. Some of the wives are like, don't do this. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Go seven days and just try to keep clean. Some of the kids from camp are like, what? What's the challenge in that? We We were supposed to shower? Take the next seven days and don't shower. Just just try to find places to keep yourself clean. That was Hiley's life for seven years. And all he had in testimony was praise for his God that he provided him a home with a shower. I'll tell you what, my shower felt entirely different this morning than it has in a really, really long time. And not just because I could drink the water without getting sick. I was so thankful for it. I was so overjoyed to have it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 talks about the idea of rejoicing always, praying always, always giving thanks in all circumstances. You know what Becky and I entrusted ourselves in Ethiopia to do is that every trial that came our way, I felt like, Lord, you must be disciplining me. You must be wanting to train up something in me. You must want to call out something in me that needs, uh, that needs a challenge right now. It's not a frustration to my plans. It's your will. And so, Lord, help me just to have the wisdom and the know-how to make the decision I need to make in this moment. Here's the next word. You knew this word would be in here, but the word is adoption. Some of you know um, that we're adopting two children, and there they are, a boy and a girl. The boy on the, on the right is named Eli, and uh, he is nine months old. And the girl on the left is named Kaya. And uh, we had an amazing opportunity to meet them, visit with them three different times. I promise you in two weeks that three different visits for roughly an hour to two each was not enough. Uh, we, we would have longed to just be there the whole time, uh, but that's the process and that's what we did. Ephesians 1.4 should be fresh in our minds. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There is, uh, there is something significantly profound in participating in a physical adoption that obviously and ongoing reminds me of my spiritual adoption. At every step of the way, while we were there visiting with our kids, thinking on them and being with them, uh, I just kept on thinking about my spiritual adoption. It reminded me that it was God's will and God's purpose that sought me out, and I was helpless in the process. I did not seek God out. I did not wake up and realize, gee, it would be swell to be in the family of God. I think I'll turn my life around. It was all God reaching down according to the purpose of His will and choosing me and paving the way. And going to court to legally buy my freedom to be in his family. That's the picture of adoption. Part of the thing that we got to see was some kids that were older than ours getting adopted. And it's very, very scary, as you can imagine, to be two years old, three years old, four years old, and be handed into the arms of a person who you've never seen before, never smelled before, you've never heard the English language before, and now they're holding you for two hours at a time. And we saw these scared little faces, 
angry little faces, grieving faces, dead faces that just kind of sat there, you know, limp, like kind of enduring it, I think. And all the while, as you see these kids, you realize the remarkable thing that's happening. They're being provided a family right now. They don't necessarily understand all that's going on, but one day they'll love this moment. One day they'll come to realize that the grieving was a natural part of it. It's a grieving thing to be pulled away from what you know, even if you're being pulled into something much better. That's how it is being spiritually adopted. There's often great joy initially, but so many times we grieve our old life, don't we? We look at others and we long for people in an orphanage. Say, so, yeah, but, but, but they had this or they had that. They had that one blankie or they had that, that one swing that was so fun in my early life. And there's a grieving as we kind of pull away from that and it's strange and different and new now. And we saw that with the kids. I saw patient and committed parents. I also saw some really scared parents going... Wow, we don't know if we can handle this. In a court of law in Ethiopia, we were asked by a judge um, if we understood that this commitment was for a lifetime. We answered, absolutely we do. We were asked to promise that we would never abandon or forsake this child. We wholeheartedly and joyfully said, we commit to that. Do you see the picture of God, our Heavenly Father? I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to prepare a place, and if I'm going to prepare a place, I'm coming back for you so you and I can be together. That inner longing in your heart for your home was put there by design by me. I'm who you're searching for. Keep on coming. And to see that lived out, was amazing. Orphanages, as I looked around and walked around this orphanage, where uh, our two kids are are living, they're they're being taken away by those two uh, nice ladies in white coats um, to, to the place where they're staying, which is that yellow building. And as we walked around the orphanage, you know, I kind of start to see some similarities. There's a lot of similarities to an orphanage and a home. There's a kitchen. There are different rooms. There's caretakers. There's places to play. There's other siblings, so to speak, other kids around. But don't be fooled. As you're sitting there, even though you can find similarities to a home and a family, you look at these nice ladies who are devoting their lives to caring for orphans in Ethiopia, and you come to the understanding there's no chance in the world that a nanny will ever be a mommy, right? A nanny will never be a mommy. And what a kid longs for is a mom and a dad that they can call their own, and that they can be called their own by their parents. God made us all to be in his family. And uh, my challenge to you, Becky, Becky issued this challenge just in conversation to some people about adoption and talked to some Ethiopian families and said, you know, you could adopt. And Becky's got a sweet way about her. She's not very confrontational that way. Um, But it was interesting to see the response. You know, people... People often come and say, what a great thing it is we're doing, or whatever else it is. We try to, it's kind of like a Christian going on a mission trip, or a Christian being in a relationship with God. What a great thing it is that you're, that you're you know, reading your Bible. And you're like, yeah, you don't really get it. I mean, it's, it's totally turned on its head, isn't it? I'm the one receiving. God's the one giving. I'm receiving. 
And when someone comes and says, what a great thing it is, you have a big heart that you, uh, you know, are roping in some fam- some kids into your family. Uh, and, and we just, we would try to graciously and gently turn that and say, but you don't understand, all we're really doing is just mimicking a God that roped us into his family, and we're the ones who will receive in this. I'm not minimizing the hardships and the difficulty that's there and that, that will be there, but that's the the truth of the matter. I can't help to, but think this. As I came back home, we've been fairly low-key about this, but I am convinced there are more people in this body, within this fellowship, regular people, who can mimic the heart of God by opening their family to say, we want you. We want to pursue you, family, family-less child. We have a family for you. We have a place you can belong. And I usher it to you as a challenge saying this. It must be on uh, your heart from God. It must be a call from God that you follow Him into that. I understand not every single person is to be an adoptive family. I understand that. However, I also know the Bible's crystal clear about caring for the fatherless, providing for the orphan. I took a year of my life one time years ago, and I just read through the entire Bible that year with a lens toward God's heart for the orphan, for the widow, and for the foreigner. And it was profound to see that from Genesis to Revelation, those three people groups, the down and out, the highways and byways people are mentioned so very much. The next word I want to share with you is the word church. Acts 9.31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Now let me stop there for a minute. The church being built up. Pop quiz. Does that mean they're building lots of incredible facilities? Or does that mean people are being built up? Call it out. Yeah, I'm helping you by leaving this hand up. You're right. It's the people being built up, right? It doesn't mean that they had this incredible network of the most beautiful buildings that gave glory to God. It was the people being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, here it is, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, two words you wouldn't think normally go together, but the Bible puts them together often, fear and comfort. I fear you, great God, you're sovereign. You could wipe me out and squash me like an ant at any moment, and yet I'm comforted by you, intimate, all-knowing friend that's right next to me and indwells me. Outside of the Scriptures, I don't know where those two words live together in such harmony. But these people walked in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then it says two words. Ready for it? It multiplied. I've looked long and hard in the five or so years that our church has been in existence for church growth strategies in America that call this out. And I'll tell you what, you are hard-pressed to find literature and maybe even people modeling this to say this is how the church multiplies. It multiplies from its people walking in the fear of God, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit moves in that. I want you to know I'm praying for our church to be built up. 
I'm praying that we struggle with problems of how to find enough room for our services, how we find enough people to to do the things that we want to do, how we raise up leaders and community group shepherds quick enough so that we can meet the demand. That's my heart for this church. I don't long to be in the same place that we are a year from now or even six months from now. But what I do know is this. It is not dependent on some slick program. It's not dependent on a better building. It's not depending on more stuff or more creativity necessarily from us. We ought to be doing our part to do all the things that God's calling us to do. I hope and pray that you, church body, are looking to see our church multiplied and growing. I hope you do it as you walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a brief update on the Ethiopian church. I saw no flashy signs, very few flashy buildings, and I realized clearly that people are what make the Ethiopian church special. I'll give you a quick update. Bule, he was a guy that served me breakfast almost every morning. And here's what I was greeted with after about the first day or two. Good morning, Mr. Dave. They love to roll their R's, and I love it. And so I would say good morning to him, and I would get my, my food, and uh, we would always chat back and forth. And probably by about day two, I think, I was up early. I was reading my Bible. I was sitting out on the front little porch here and, and just talking, and we got a little bit. And, and I don't know if he said it or I said it, but we began to talk about the Lord, and, and I found out he was a Christian. I said, wow, boy, that's exciting. I said, listen, I'm looking for a church on Sunday. Can you, can you point me in the right direction? He said, oh, yeah, you can go to this church. He pointed me the way. He said, all the language, it will be in uh, Amharic, so you won't understand it. I said, that's totally fine. I'm thrilled to go worship with God's people. Glad to know that a Bible-believing Christian pointed me to a, to a Bible church. And it was neat to get to hear his story. Part of his story is this. He actually worked in the church. He was training to be a pastor, studying to, to be a minister of the gospel of grace. And you know what happened? Uh, he realized that he couldn't make a living at that and still feed his family. And so I would be there as early as 6 in the morning down in the restaurant, and one night we were there as late as 10, 10.30, and guess who was there from morning till night? Bule was there working long hours. He said, yeah, I had to stop working at the church and uh, so I could support my family, so that I could, so I could eat. And I said, well, praise God that he has you here. I mean, you're in this guest house where all these people are coming and going from all different places in the world. He's never left Ethiopia as well. And here he is getting to, to minister. I talked to a couple friends of ours that, uh, that told me about the church in Europe. These weren't Christians as far as I knew. In fact, we talked about the Lord uh, quite a bit on our stay. And they made this comment that, yeah, the, the, the church that you go to and, and what, what seems like is going on in your and Becky's life seems, seems uh, alive. I think we might go to church if it was a church like your church. That sounds so appealing. I said, well, tell me about the church in, in this, this part of Europe that you live in. They said, well, it's a relic. It's dead and it's cold. And the only ones who see value in it are our grandparents. They want us all to go. And I said, wow, you wonder how it is. I just thought this out loud with them. How in a generation it went from being a vital part of what's going on in that culture, in that city, in that region, to a generation later being an absolute relic. Will you raise your kids in the church? They said, well, we won't stop them from doing it, but we're not in the church, so no, we're not going to you know, invite them into that. Cold and frigid is how I would describe the church there. 
There was an Orthodox church not far from where we were. I asked highly. I said, tell me about the Orthodox church. He said, well, by and large, they heap heavy loads on people and don't lift a finger to help them with it. It's a lot of rules and regulations. I saw many, many people walk by a church and as they'd go by the front door, they would do some rituals and then move on. Sunday morning, I walked down to the, to the Orthodox church and I witnessed uh, almost a biblical scene. All the heads were covered by the ladies with beautiful scarves. Everyone was, had put on their, their Sunday best. All the people of the city who were poor, disfigured, dismembered were there receiving alms, receiving money. And people were going into worship and there were different stages that I didn't catch all of it, but I just walked along and saw different people, some praying at this level, some praying at this level, some going all the way in. New church strategy that I think we might instill here is this. They had the sermon blaring for speakers. It can be heard for probably 10 blocks. And this guy's just going on and I'm just praying. I said, Lord, I don't know what he's saying. I don't know if this is an Orthodox church that's heaping heavy loads and binding people and blinding people to the truth of the gospel, but I pray that somehow your message of love, your message of forgiveness, your message of being covered in the blood of Jesus from the wrath of come uh, that, that, that's to come on sin is somehow getting through in what's being proclaimed all through the city right now. We, went, we ended up going to a different church than, uh, than Bully told us about. It's called Inter- International Evangelical uh, church. And while in this place, uh, the second song we heard was a David Crowder tune. And I'm like, yes, that sounds really, really good. Here's a church of about 700 and just all different kinds of colors in that church and people from all different places. They kind of cater to the missionaries that are there. Uh, but what a joy to, to just worship with all these different people, many, many Ethiopians, along with just all kinds of different people. The, the, the preacher that morning was clearly from the southern part of the United States of America, and he had an, and he had an intern who was from Canada, and he got up and just shared how uh, the Lord was doing incredible things in his life, and, and he shared how he was back in Ethiopia now doing this internship at this church, and it was a joy to be there. Uh, while we're sitting in court one day, we were in a room with a bunch of people and I struck up a conversation with one of the other American families there who was adopting and we got chatting a little bit and uh, as we talked, I mean, we just couldn't believe it because I said, well, what do you do? And he's talking, he goes, well, I, I train youth pastors for my denomination. And I said, you kind of look like that. He just kind of just, you know, I thought he's a musician or something. And uh, I said, wow, that's really exciting. That sounds really cool. And I said, what denomination is that? And then he told me, and I said, wow, I said, that sounds an awful lot like a buddy of mine who I first interned under named Dave Underwood. I said, did you happen to know a guy named Dave Underwood? He was at, you know, Greater Portland Bible Church. And, and then later on, he goes, oh, yeah, Dave Underwood. Yeah, yeah, I know Dave. And we got talking. I said, I can't believe that. And then it dawned on me that at one point, Dave Underwood called me and said, do you have any great people? I don't want, you know, some schmuck here. I want your top of the you know, line guy to come and do youth ministry for me. And I prayed about it. I didn't like the answer. The answer was a guy by the name of Ben Palm. And so I prayed again. I'm like, Lord, are you sure? And what the Lord told me was, you need to, you need to tell him about Ben Palm. So I called my buddy Dave up. I said, Dave, I want you to know, I'm not giving you someone that I can't wait to get rid of in ministry. Let's just keep it real. There's sometimes that going on. Bless you, brother, as you head off to Alaska. Um, I said, listen. I am giving you my right arm in ministry right now. I am not excited to see him go, but I'm convinced that you, you have to at least meet and talk with Ben Palm. Long story short, Ben went to do youth ministry for Dave for what? A couple years? Two years. 
So I asked this guy, I said, uh, you don't know a guy by the name of Ben Palm, do you? And here's what he did. He goes, you mean Ben? <laughs> so greetings from Eric with a K. Yep. Um, man, what a joy. What a joy to just strike up a conversation with a, with a fellow. We, we enjoyed uh, a few meals with them. They're, they had their, their, their two uh, kids with them. So fun to be around kids. I miss being around kids when I was in Ethiopia, and we just had a good time talking with, uh, with Karsten and Kinsey. They're, they're two uh, kids hanging out with them. Here's another one. Uh, we, we spent the last two days, I was really praying, Lord, you want us to, to head out into the bush and stay at this little place where sometimes people go off to, and, and uh, we really got a sense, yeah, go, go out there. And so it was really good to get out of the city and out of the smog for the last two days. We show up at this place, and the first night that we're there... Beck and I were sitting there enjoying some things, watching the monkeys and whatnot. And uh, the first uh, the first afternoon, actually, that we're there, we come walking up, and uh, there's a there's a guy, there's a white guy there, and um, and he's clearly Jewish. He has he has his, his hat on, and he's walking towards us, and his translator's there with him, and uh, and the and the translator knew highly our driver, and so they hugged and talked and are talking back and forth in their language, you know. And, uh, and then he introduces Becky and I and says who we are and what we're about. And, and this guy just kind of threw out, you know, what a blessing that you're adopting kids. And, you know, kind of threw out little lingo here and there. And I was wondering what he was about. Uh, and then they, uh, our driver left. And we're sitting there. And he walks up to Becky and he says, by the way, he says, we're in this building over here doing some teaching and worship. You're welcome to join us if you want. So we were super hungry. We decided to eat a meal. And then I went and slipped in. And this is a picture of Chaim up teaching. He's the white face up front and his translators next to him. I'm about halfway to the front. So there are equally amount of number of people behind me. I came in and sat on the floor because guess what? Every single chair was taken. Ages, probably about 13 years old, uh, all the way up to um, probably 60s. He's walking them through uh, different feasts in the Bible for Jewish people to remember and to honor. And it was amazing to hear him talk about Yeshua. And he is a Messianic Jew that worships Jesus Christ and was teaching Jews in Ethiopia their heritage and what it is to, to, to walk in these things and, and still honor the Messiah that's come. I had an amazing conversation with him later. I cannot wait to talk to Carol about this guy, Chaim. And it was a joy to just sit and get to hear from him. Uh, later on that night, we met Yosef and Yodit. They are a couple with their kids, their three children. And um, they were speaking on Harak. And so we just kind of shyly said hello. And then they said in perfect English, so where are you guys from? We're like, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of weird. And so uh, we just started talking. And it turns out they're both from Ethiopia, but had lived in Dallas for a long time. The guy was an aerospace engineer, got called into the ministry, and he's a pastor. So here we are talking. He started a church four months ago. And I'm just, our minds are being blown. We're just talking back and forth. And for probably about an hour and a half while the kids played pool and we had a hailstorm and the whole crazy deal, we're just talking ministry and we're encouraging one another. And the next morning, we said, man, we can't wait to see you at breakfast. We'll get to talk more. And that's exactly what we did. We come down for breakfast. And in the restaurant that morning, we meet this guy named Ralph. He's white-faced. And so we thought we'd talk to him and say, hi, how are you? And, and he said, my name's Ralph. I said, Ralph, what are you doing here? And he said, well, 
I head up this thing called uh, Hope Ethiopia. Here's one of my cards. And he pulled off the little Lance Armstrong bracelet and handed it to me and said, HopeEthiopia.com. I said, cool, what's that all about? He went on to describe basically a relief organization kind of a thing, similar to what Hands of Hope is doing with orphanages, but really focused on, uh, on relief aid in Ethiopia and Rwanda. He's a Christian guy that loves Jesus Christ, and he lives in, in Calgary, Alberta. I mean, it, it got to the point where every person I saw, I'm like, all right, who are you? What are you doing? What's the Lord doing in your life? I can't wait to hear it because I just began to expect that every single place that we went. We got to pray with, uh, with Yodit and Yosef on the last day and, um, and they gave a report of the Ethiopian church saying this, you know, one of the challenges that, that we have is that all of our best and brightest tend to go off and leave the country. Unlike Yosef and Yodit who have made a point to come back to a country that is very low on the health scale, very low on the money scale, and invest and pour into that. He said, Dave, would you, would you call me, would you email me before you come next time on your second trip? I think I may get to do some ministry with him on our second trip when we go pick up the kids. In between holding kids, I'll just be preaching or something. I don't know what's going to go on, but the Lord does. And I said, I want you to know, our church will be praying for you. I'm going to personally be praying for Mercy Church in Ethiopia. It convinced me of something that I already knew. Colossians 1.6 says this, All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. Isn't that powerful? A short two-week trip to a single city, basically, and the surrounding region. And I just got to hear story after story after story. A couple more quick words. The word bread. Uh, this is the World Vision team. We got to go visit World Vision in Addis Ababa. And I, uh, I got introduced. It was quite funny, actually, because um, <laughs> I felt like a commander on the deck of an aircraft carrier or something. Uh, this guy to my immediate left um, introduced me to all the people uh, on computers, and, and it was pretty rudimentary, but there was about six people, and we went around and shook each person's hand. We walked in the mail room. I, he said, would you like to see the mail room? I said, I'd love to see the mail room. So we walked in, and almost immediately, everyone stood up, you know, like this. I'm like, at ease, soldiers. Like, I didn't know what to say, you know. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, and, and they went around and introduced each person, and I said, what a powerful thing. These are the people that receive the packages. So when you send a package, know that there's a real person who loves Jesus on the other end, is on the same team, taking that package that started in your home, was prayed over, and they're going to get it to one of the most remote regions, the Gowata region, which is our region. Here's our little mailbox. I said, I want to see our mailbox. So she had to shove her chair out of the way, and I took a picture of where our packages reside and sit until they're trying to be delivered out into the Gowata region which is way out in kind of the, the far southern, southwestern region of things. But I thought, what a beautiful thing to see this world vision going into these communities and saying, we're going to meet the physical needs of giving you daily bread, of ensuring that, of helping with that. But we're also going to do it in the name of Jesus Christ so that you'll get spiritual food that will sustain you for an eternity. Remember what Jesus said? He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I want to invite Gree up right now, uh, and we have something called the Summer Theologian Series starting this Wednesday night, 
And uh, we have three different tracks that you can kind of choose from. And I wanted to ask uh, Gria and Kel both to just give a little blurb on what theirs is about so that you can, um, you can hear kind of what the different tracks are. And uh, there's the mic. Thanks, Gria. All right, so my track is going to be um, on parts of the doctrine of the application of redemption. Okay, kind of a mindful, but uh, we're really going to look at some chapters in, uh, in, a, in the systematic theology book. And systematic theology is a really fancy word for what does the whole Bible say about a particular topic. And uh, the topics that we're going to look at are conversion. So, for example, what is true repentance? Um, what is saving faith? Uh, can people accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord? Um, we're then going to look at justification. So how and when do we gain right legal standing before God? Um, we'll then look at adoption. Uh, what are benefits of being a member of God, God's family and uh, things along those lines? And finally, uh, we'll take a look at sanctification. So how do we grow in Christian maturity? And uh, what are the blessings of Christian growth? So those kind of questions, those kind of topics, we'll be doing a whole lot of uh, diving into our Bibles uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, so. Kel, why do you come on up too? Uh, as Kel's coming up, I'll share mine. Um, I'm going to do one basically for six weeks. We're just going to look at diving into God's Word. And I shared a couple weeks ago about um, the necessity to eat to live. And spiritually, your food is the Bible. Uh, we had Brad, Dr. Brad Walker share, and he said, I'm a carnivore, and I love to dive into this thing. And uh, I'm convinced many people would love to read God's Word, want to, but they get bogged down after just a few tries, and it can be kind of a challenge. So we're going we're gonna to really look at that and, and, and practice that and, and, and do that in community. Uh, Cal, would you do yours? So for, uh, for the time that I'll be facilitating, um, mine is a mouth to, mouthful also. Ours is Ruth. <laughs> and so for those of you who don't uh, know, Ruth is a very, very short uh, book in the Old Testament. And my son has a great way of remembering where it is in the time of Judges. He doesn't call Judges um, you know, the Judges of Israel. He treats it as a verb. Joshua judges Ruth. Like Joshua's judging Ruth. <laughs> so it comes right after Judges. But anyway, um, my my intention or hope in spending some time uh, with whoever uh, might want to join uh, in, in this small book is inspiring you to go much, much deeper in the Word. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what we'll be doing is looking at some, some, some things that are very accessible uh, just through reading. Uh, learn about some things in the Old Testament like love, right, marriage, gleaning, uh, a nearest, what it means to be a nearest kinsman. But then we'll kind of peel the onion a bit and see that the plan of redemption is written in the book of Ruth. Mm. And we'll see that the characters in the book are, are prototypes, they're types, and, and lay out God's plan way before Jesus uh, stepped foot. Mm. And then um, there's, there's more to it in the, the literary structures that you, when you read it and you learn these things about it, you can only come away with an inspiration that this is scripted by the Holy Spirit. Mm. And my, my idea in this 
is that it would not only draw you to this book, but it would draw you to the other 65 books and that see how much God cares to write this for you, for me, for you. And through that, um, you know, that you would want to search more on your own and within community, what have you, because when you search, you will find. Thanks. Uh, so listen, those start on Wednesday night. They're going to run for six weeks. All the information is on the website. Yeah. I did want to say that um, we'll, we'll go through this in a way that's family-friendly, so uh, children of all ages. Um, I've kind of been through some of this with our children and things like that, so don't feel like um, you know it's not accessible for uh, the younger of us. Good. Yes, and just a quick word on child care for that. We are not providing a separate children's program uh, some of these classes might be more conducive for that. Some of you may uh, feel comfortable with your kids helping out in our enclosed area in back, which we're, uh, we're getting our new playground installed, so it's perfect timing. Uh, lots of sharp things back there for them to touch. Honestly, I don't know what we're going to do about this first week, but we're working overtime to get that in a safe, good, usable place for our kids. Um, but we, want, we don't want that to... to limit you necessarily. If you need to jump in and out a little bit of the thing, that's totally fine. Uh, but six weeks will be here uh, on Wednesday nights. All right, let me invite the band up. I've got two more words that I'm going to share very quickly. Uh, we're going to close with just a single song, The Unfailing Love of God, as we take our offering here in just a minute. And I want to share with you two more words. The one word is battle. And uh, I just want to comment to you after having just taught on Ephesians, fighting the good fight, uh, it was clear to me that the battle is raging in, in Africa. It's a different culture. There's different people there. But guess what? The weapons are still the same that we're to take up. And the enemy is easily recognizable in his tactics and the things that he's doing there. It was, it was raging both in me as I prayed and kind of walked through my two weeks there. And it was evident in those who were uh, involved in the good fight, some, some feeling overwhelmed, uh, many who were hopeless there. Many who are trying to grab for the good life, which when you're on a totally different scale, you're like, that's not even the good life, really. Why would you sell everything for that cheap, chintzy kind of thing? And, uh, and I, just, I just saw it. First Peter 5.8 just was so prevalent. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. How appropriate is this for Africa? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour I want you to know the battle is being fought in Ethiopia, and it's also raging over there. The last word is this. The word is mission. Uh, this is a picture of me with a guy, the guy in the blue jacket I met on day two. And day two, I'm sipping a coffee in front of our guest house, and he was out there, and at first they smile at you. A few of them know, hello, hello, hello. That's all they know. So they just keep saying it over and over, louder. Uh, and... Um, and then once in a while, people start to do this. They start to go, come on. And it's kind of universal for, you know, give me something to eat. I'm hungry. And this guy's deal was he was a shoe shiner. And for most of the time, I wore these kind of leather hiking boots and my little, uh, you know, keen adventure sandals. Neither one of them did I want him pouring, you know, things on and shining. I just, it, it wasn't really necessary. But then the day came when we went to court and I didn't dress like this any other day, but on the day we went to court, we dressed up. And we walked about two kilometers around the block down to the courthouse. I come out of the courthouse, and who would I find but this, this little buddy of mine, 
She's probably about seven years old. The guy in the red on the left is 10 years old. He's the little ringleader. He's the oldest of the bunch. Can you imagine having your kids cruising around in pockets, going up to strangers, doing their job more than a mile and a half from who knows where home base is for these kids? Guess what happened? I had shoes on that genuinely needed a shoe shine. Yes! I'm like, buddy, today's your day. Let's do this. So he sat down and he was so excited. He just did his little shoe shine. And, uh, and it was a joy to sit there. And this guy in the red knew a little bit of English. He knew probably 15 words, which was 14 more than most. So we had a nice little conversation while we sat there and got my shoes shined. But here's what I wanted to bring this picture up for is this. The day we landed, we had been awake for 36 hours or so. And we went to check in with our Dove representative, our agency's representative, our lawyer there. And so uh, he said, well, when, you know, can you meet in a couple hours? And I'm like, sure. You know, We've only been up for 36. What's 38? You know, so we went and met with him. And to be honest, I don't remember what, much of what we talked about because I was... <laughs> I was, you know, semi-unconscious at that point. And he said, uh, he said, so when can you visit, when do you want to visit your children? And I'm like, well, let me check my calendar. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot I want to do here. No, I was like, you tell me when. I mean, what are we here for? We're here to meet our kids. That's, that's the only thing that matters, that and going to court. That's, that's the only thing that we're here for. He said, well, how about in about an hour and a half? I said, absolutely. So, bleary-eyed, we, we drove to the orphanage and met our kids that very first day, which was awesome. It was such a great thing. And then for court date, we were told to be at court on June 20th at 9 a.m. Guess where we were? At court. Guess what we didn't do? We didn't debate on whether we should sleep in. We didn't debate on whether it would be another time to go visit Mount Toto and go for another hike. We didn't these discussions about, well, there's a really neat restaurant that I'm, I'm dying to try. You know why? We knew our mission. It was crystal clear. We were at court in plenty of time. And as I was doing these things there, some of you will experience this in Mexico in a few days. When you're in Mexico, you know crystal clear why you're there. You're not there to go do all these other things that, that you're not on a vacation. When people would ask, what are you doing in Ethiopia? I didn't have to think about it. I said, we're adopting two kids. That's what we're doing here. And we made the appointment, and we made our visits because that's what we're doing there. You know what, Christian? We have our mission. It's crystal clear. Ready? Go. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach them all that I've commanded you. That's your mission. When someone asks you what you do, you should say, well, I make disciples, I baptize, I preach, because how are they going to hear and believe unless they hear me preach, and, and, I, and I teach some. Oh, really, so you're a pastor, you're a minister, you're a, a, a missionary? Oh, no, 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 I'm a school teacher. I'm an engineer. I'm a truck driver. I'm a mom. But you see, as a Christian, our mission is, it should be crystal clear to us, right, of what we're doing here. This isn't our home. This is our mission. Before we go to prayer, let me just say this. All these seven words I just shared with you have something in common. None of them make any sense. None of them have any vitality or power to them in any way, shape, or form without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of them. They fall flat. All it is is pictures and some stories about food. If not for the risen Jesus, 
and his death. Let me pray, and then we'll sing this song and take up our offering. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And God, we can't possibly think of and pray for each individual by name, but how powerful it is to know that the hairs on our head are numbered. That each day has been ordained for us by a sovereign God and that you have chosen to use your church, the people, to be your witnesses throughout all the earth. I pray for Bule and Chaim, Yosef and Yodit, and Fulta and Pedro and others that I got to meet along the way. Some of you who are passionately in love with you understand your rule and your love and others who don't. God, I pray that you would soften and open hearts in Ethiopia and around the world and in this room this morning, that you would gift people to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are all about and what you're doing. For those of us who've gotten mundane or lost in the mission of what we're here for, would you fan that into flame and make that a fresh commitment to us? We pray that you'd use this Wednesday night series that we'd commit to coming and being a part of it, to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.